0: You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, stream our show at nprnews.org backslash listen, live every weekday at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show.
1: Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover 2020, an election year series from the Midwest about the Midwest in tumultuous times. Today, why it often seems like two steps forward, one step back for women in electoral politics. Okay. It is undeniable that there were more women running for the 2020 Democratic nomination than ever before. Have you noticed who the field has narrowed to? Elizabeth Warren and Tulsi Gabbard might have made it past Super Tuesday. But two 70-something white male Easterners are leading in the nomination delegate count. And the overall math doesn't lie. Nine women governors, 102 women in the U.S. House, and out of 100 senators, 26 are women. So right now you're murmuring to yourself, well, that's better than it used to be, and maybe all those men were the better candidates. Here's what you should know about that math and those candidates, and what it means to bring more women into politics. When women run, political scientists have determined that they are as likely as their male opponents to win. That is not the end of the story. Not as many women decide to run in the first place. And when they do, they lag male candidates in raising money. And you've seen what a difference fundraising has made in the 2020 nomination race. So as our guests join us, I especially want to hear from women who have thought about a career in politics. If you are a woman, have you ever considered running for office? Talk to me this morning about what held you back or what prompted you to get in. What did you encounter? And as a voter, do you notice that women candidates confront more negative social media and gendered campaign coverage? Because that's what the research tells us. So, voters and prospective candidates and women who have run and women who are thinking about it, I want to know about what made you get in, what held you back, what did you encounter on the campaign trail? And, voters, I want to hear from you about whether you notice the kind of negative social media that women candidates encounter. Do you notice the gendered media campaign coverage? And that's what the research tells us. So I'd like to hear from you on how you perceive this. 651-227-6800-242-2828 and on Twitter at Carrie NPR. Erin Velarde is with us, founder and CEO of Vote Run Lead, a training program to help women run for office and win. And she's with us today from Washington, D.C. Erin, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Carrie. Diane Bystrom is with us, Director Emeritus of the Carrie Chapman-Katz Center for Women in Politics. We find her this morning in Omaha, Nebraska. And Diane, welcome to you. Good to have you on the show.
2: Uh, Great to be here.
1: Diane, I wonder if you look at this nomination field with so many accomplished women at the beginning for the Democratic nomination and say, well, significant progress. Or do you say, look where we've ended up, uh, you know, two men vying, in the nomination delegate race. How do you see what happened?
2: Well, I would say yes to both. It was significant, I think, that we had such a growth in the number of women uh, candidates running for the Democratic nomination for president. So that was a plus. But of course, what it's winnowed down to is the fact that we only have two women left of the initial that, uh, that ran. And I do think it's because a couple of factors, and you mentioned it in your intro to the show, is my research has focused on since about the early 1990s on women's media coverage. And what we've seen is an improvement in their coverage when they run for uh, state office and also for Congress. But what has not improved is the coverage of women running for president. And I think we've certainly saw that in 2016. And we saw it again in this primary.
1: Yeah, Aaron, I'd love to hear how you characterize the kind of media coverage that you've seen in, in this nomination race. Again, you know, uh, with the caveat of what Diane said, we're seeing it, improvement in congressional races and maybe statewide races, but we all pay attention to the presidential race. What would you see? Sexism. <laughs> no no <laughs> question, because, huh? <laughs> you know, it,
3: it, just because it is less sexism doesn't make it any better, right? We, we actually have a new form of how women are being discriminated against, and that's around social media and the deep harassment so on top of the coverage um, in which we saw, you know, through the Me Too movement, the decision makers who actually decide the narratives are those also, you know, participating in um, often unlawful or at least unprofessional behavior, right? They're, they're at the at the very national level um, when we saw it with the, you know, what women are calling the erasure of Elizabeth Warren uh, after she wasn't included on a poll because they didn't have the budget for a sixth candidate, even though she was polling number two nationally at the time, or her uh, lack of coverage on raising $29 million in February. Um, You know, we... We need to name it so that we understand that the problem is no longer that we do not have qualified women. Right. In fact, we have a slew of overqualified women who are running from everything for city council to Congress. The conditions that women are running in are actually not allowing them to move forward.
1: You've just brought up something I, I also wanted to dig into, which is, do you think we are past the idea that a woman's resume, you know, has to be twice as long As a man's to run and that voters still ask, look askance if it doesn't have certain things on that resume. Are we beyond that? Because I have to say the women that joined this this 2020 uh, nomination race came from a lot of different backgrounds, geography, life experience, professional experience. What what do you see happening uh, on that front
3: um, That's hope. where I'm hopeful. I see a wide range of diverse women, both uh, racially diverse, younger women running across the country, uh, women stepping forward in more rural communities. Um, I agree at the presidential level to, to sort of see... Um, the you know a woman veteran a you know uh, an activist join in you know four qualified deeply qualified women senators uh, one of color right. that's a it's a it's a remarkable field to choose from um, and seeing more than one of us is important um, and this is research I know Diane is a, a foremother in this work of women in politics um, and I uh, want to applaud the work that she's done because it's no longer when you have one woman up there you know, it's all about her gender. When you have two, you have a comparison. When you have six, you actually have to start looking at their agendas. And I do believe that we have the opportunity to look at the agendas of the presidential candidates. But I also deeply believe that, you know, both Warren as the more progressive candidate and Klobuchar as the more moderate candidate in both ability and capability, you know, should have been the leaders in the progressive lane and in the moderate lane, except for the fact that we have this, sort of invisible weight around gender that we can't seem to break through, that we can't seem to um, really attach to that leaderly presidential, you know, can she beat Trump narrative that that is, as we know, and we saw on Super Tuesday, how voters were going to the polls to make their decision.
1: Diane, I'm going to come to you on this resume template in just a minute. But I want to grab a call from Christina in Duluth. Christina, thanks so much for calling. Tell me a little bit about yourself.
4: Hi, I've been living in Duluth for about 12 years and in the last maybe five or six have wanted to pursue putting my voice into the political system to um, help the community, um, help the marginalized community here in Duluth. I'm Anishinaabe Uh and I have done a lot of due diligence with regards to getting into city council races, representative uh, races for our area. And I've been asked, I've even been asked to run for Congress. Uh And when I start looking into these opportunities and people encourage me to put my name in, two things have happened. One is I've been asked to step aside and let somebody else run even though people have asked me to put my name in other potential candidates have asked me to step aside and two the networking does not seem to encourage women or women of color and indigenous women in particular to feel successful with running a campaign. Um, considering the amount of work I would have to do to run for the same seat. Um, and I've worked with organizations in, out of the Twin Cities who do help women run com- campaigns, and I've reached out to them. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, they're still either in the beginning or mid-level stages of really understanding how to get women of color and indigenous women in political seats.
1: Okay. So, Christine, I'm so glad you called in on this show because you've got two women who are deeply immersed in this. And Diane, with a lot of history to this, is what Christina is saying familiar to you? Have you heard this from other women who'd like to run
2: Yes. And I think what she's getting at are a couple of things. One is a political ambition, which we talk about in the field. And men have a greater political ambition, about 16 to 17 percent larger than women. And so what's happened, and Erin can speak to this as well, she's affiliated with a campaign training school. I was affiliated with Ready to Run Iowa. And what has happened is that there's now about 400 campaign training schools across the country focused on getting women to run. And some do have a component. I know Ready to Run does, for example, with their New Jersey program. And so what's happening, you know, kind of to bat this political ambition and gets at the root to what she was saying is that women are not encouraged as much as men are to run for office. And this actually starts when they're like in middle school and high school by their parents and their teachers. And so by the time, there's very small gender gap among high school students that they, they are not very ambitious, but the gap is very small. That gap grows in college and gets worse as you enter the professions. And so that's what she's seeing. She's not being encouraged to run. So these campaign schools have popped up around the country. I'm sure there's some in Minnesota um, that train women to run. Most of these schools are bipartisan or nonpartisan, and there's like an equal number, about 80 so, uh, Republican schools and and Democratic schools. And so that's one thing to do is look for that, because they do teach you the nuts and bolts about running for office they have topics you know a big topic obviously is fundraising you know women can raise just as much as money as men but they don't think that they can and they're kind of uncomfortable with asking for money so that's a big topic dealing with the media is a big topic just all sort of communication uh, not only giving you know speeches but also what your website should look at and and today what you should do on social media and yeah. so those are those troning programs all provide that.
1: Yeah, and so, Erin, this whole thing that Christina talked about was step aside, as in would you consider running, well, we have somebody who has more experience, you may have to wait your turn, and what she said about the networking to raise money. Money's important in a congressional race. Speak to those things specifically, if you would.
3: Absolutely. And she's also talking about the experiences of women of color stepping into a system that has not built been built for them by any means. And so the network component, um, you know, Vote Run Lead has been, uh, we launched in Minnesota. We are deeply committed to um, making sure that the women leaders of Minnesota, like Christine, have the network and resources that she needs. And and both Emily Larson, who's the mayor uh, of Duluth, and uh, Janet Kennedy, who's the first African-American woman on the city council in Duluth, are part of our community. And I want to shout them out because I know that those two women would are, are taking coffees or having these conversations. Because what women and especially women of color need, and we're teaching this at Vote Run Lead, is you need an insider and outsider strategy. Uh-huh. You can't rely simply on the party politics and the infrastructure of parties because they're a little bit afraid of this new wave of women, this new wave of women of color stepping forward. But at the same time you have to be able to access the party resources. As an outsider, what you're, you're sharing and saying to voters is, I'm going to bring a fresh perspective. So what we've seen, particularly around women of color running and running successfully through the Vote Run Lead program, is really navigating that insider-outsider strategy well and understanding that you're going to get both racism and sexism on the campaign trail. And how do we prepare you to talk about that? We teach women how to run as you are. I'm not act interested in teaching you how to, you know, sort of handle somebody at the doors who's going to say something inappropriate. We've got to figure out how you, you don't need to knock on that door, right? And and if someone's coming at you on social media, this is not about being quiet. This is, in fact, about putting that, screenshotting that, letting the police know that this is a person to be watchful for, putting that on social media, and making, helping the community have you shame that person and for that behavior, because... This is about changing not only who is running, but the system and the the environment around those women because those things have been, for too long been acceptable. and that's the narrative that has to change. Um, and so I'd be happy to you know offline connect Christine to some yeah. Other- I, I
1: was just gonna say, Christina, if you would give us some uh, some contact info offline to one of our producers and we'll make sure that you link up with Erin, okay? Because sure. you've got um, some role models. That, yeah, you want to add.
4: Women winning. Yeah, I've already linked up with women winning and Boat right. Run Lead. I went to their trainings, And what I'm Yay. trying to emphasize is that, and I'm good friends with Emily Larson, and I know Janet Kennedy very good. well. I helped her with her campaign. But I want you to know that in Duluth and across the country, all these programs cannot be effective. Without a strong circle of advocacy and support of women who are Euro heritage, for instance, or men who are Euro heritage, to really step in and lean in and be willing to open up their networks
5: to help women of color
4: and indigenous women. And that's my point. That's not happening. And so women of color and indigenous women are finding it difficult to run because exponentially the work... And you can talk to um, Renee Vanette, who sits on city council. Um, You can talk to uh, Beth Olson, who is a queer woman who is a commissioner on our St. Louis County board. Not only do they get death threats, but the work is exponentially more, which means you you need a lot more people and you need access to the network of financial resources, and human resources. I'm a fundraiser. I know
1: I can. You know how to do this.
4: Yeah. But these are the barriers. And I'm not seeing, I mean, it would be nice if Vote Run Lead focused just on women of color and indigenous women. That would be great. Or if there was another organization that did just that, because it's a tremendous amount of work. And it's a different training for women of color and indigenous women than it is for Euro Heritage women Aaron, running what, for office. What do you think? I think those are one we're always improving
3: and taking feedback from our community and absolutely. I think what you're naming Christina is allyship. You're you're naming a solution and that is opening up our networks. Um, and, you know, to be quite honest, I, I, I have a lot of conversations with white women about what they can do, and I'm continuing to sort of collect, if you will, these these nuggets of wisdom around what is what is the action that we're looking for um, when we talk about allyship with women of color um, because the words are sort of ringing hollow, right? We want to do the right thing, and what you're naming is a solution, which is open your networks, you know, call, th- call it out, um, you know... And and I will take that into feedback, and uh, we're constantly iterating on our training, and we will make sure that that becomes even a greater priority for us.
1: You're listening to Flyover 2020 this hour. It's our election year series from the Midwest, about the Midwest, and we are talking about getting more women into the pipeline from both parties to run for office. Things have changed a bit about... Uh, Women candidates competing against male candidates. uh, uh, I want to ask our guests about this. Political scientists are finding that once in the race, if you can get more women to run in the race, the the playing field has leveled a bit. Still difficult for women to raise money. Still a lot of sexism in the media coverage and especially on social media. So I want to hear from you this morning as a woman. Have you considered running for office? What has held you back? We heard a, a bit of experience there from Christina. What prompted you to get in? And as voters, have you noted the kinds of negative social media and gendered campaign coverage that women encounter. As a voter, do you see it? Because that's half the battle right there, to see it. 651-227-6000, 800-242-2828, anywhere in the upper Midwest, and on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. What Bambi says here on Twitter says makes me so mad, I heard both Hillary and Warren be criticized for having shrill voices. Yeah, that's a common one. Never mind Hillary's voice is low and Warren's is breathy. Never mind they are both professionally coached and rehearsed speakers. What does it have to do with policy or competence? To the phones here to Lou in the Twin Cities. Hi, thanks so much for waiting.
6: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, You know, I just, I I thought about running for office um, and it was, um, and I contacted Women Winning, um, and I'm a person of color. I'm an immigrant. Um, and so I was just, um, energized by, uh, a, you know, uh, female leaders like Ilhan Omar and so on that, you know, made it possible that people like, oh, could be elected. I yeah. can definitely do it too. Um, and so I went into it with, with this and that I had the passion to serve. I wanted to serve. I had the knowledge to do so. Um, uh, but once we got through the process, I realized that as a first generation, Anything for my family, actually, Um, that I did not have the connections required to raise the money. I did not have uh, the community. I did not have any of that, which is required to even begin to run for office. Um, Additionally, you start to see kind of the reaction towards, uh, you know, female leaders, including Johan, but also white women. Right. They are threatened. They uh, the post on social media is so ugly uh, it's, it's very discouraging. So there's that daunting first phase, and then there's the second part where you see them and you see how they're treated, and you start to question why. Why would anyone elect someone so, like me who stands at an intersection of being a female, black, and an immigrant? I'm really right? glad it, you. There's a lot, of, a lot of that.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you called because Diane, I want to come. I, I wanted to come back to this question about as you as you help prepare women uh, of I lose background and concerns about what it's going to be like out there on the campaign trail. Is this about, well, you are just going to have to endure this? I mean, this is at the moment, this is what it's like, particularly for a woman of color to run. Or are there specific, uh, I don't know, techniques uh, methods to to combat that it, if the environment is not going to change as quickly as we hope it would. Yes. And I think, you know, and Erin Aaron can, Aaron can speak to this as
2: well. In the time that I ran Ready to Run Iowa, uh, for about 10 years, we were constantly changing our program to fit the political environment. And all the other schools I know are the same thing. And so what has happened with Ready to Run is that we have gone from one workshop, for example, on communication to three separate workshops, uh, particularly because of social media. And then something that's really happened since really 2016, maybe a little bit earlier, is how to deal with this, these threats on social media. And Erin's talked about one way to do that, report it. And so schools are the training programs I'm aware of, including Erin's, they do deal with these issues. They're constantly changing, constantly improving to fit the political environment. Most of them rely uh, not only on research from uh, political scientists and communication uh, scholars, but also on the, the experiences of women who have run. And so, you know, I would say that, you know, attending a school like this would be helpful. To you and I, and I think the fact, and Erin talked to this earlier, too, is that we are seeing such a new, diverse field of younger women running for office, and that should be encouraging to other women of color, to other uh, immigrant women, and that we are seeing this. And so, again, I think this gets back, again, to political ambition and the fact that women are more nervous to run for office because of the things that she just said. I yeah, mean, so right. it is kind of scary. No wonder I, the pipeline do, is yeah, clogged. yeah. yeah. And I and I want to get back, just a quick answer to your question. And, you know, I'm working on a book, co-authoring a book on women in politics that should come out in August 2020. And one of the things that's happened, it is true that when women run they win at about the same rate Mm -hmm, as men. mm -hmm. But new research has shown Ah. that there have been several studies that look, and and it's the same thing, but they've looked at the qualifications of men and women running in Uh a certain cycle. What they found out is that the women have a much stronger resume. And so what it is is, yes, they do win – when they 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 win at the same rate as men, but the studies, and I think there's two or three of them that have worked, looked at that. But they found is that they're basically they're winning because they have greater qualifications than the men. So, and I think that's what you saw in this year's presidential. For sure, the, the, I the mean, so for far. sure,
1: Diane. I mean, so some of that is this, you know, gender bias. I won't vote for a woman has given way to I'm going to demand. That she demonstrate her competency again and again and again, right? That's, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's voter expectation. Aaron, uh, I want to come to you in a minute, but I want to take a call here from Ruth in Fargo, North Dakota. Hi, Ruth. Are you here to say you can do it? You can win? That's my experience. Good. <laughs> yes.
5: Hi. Thank you for having me. Yes, a friend um, texted me and encouraged me to call in. And <laughs> I'm glad you did.
1: Encouragement. <laughs> What's your yeah. story? Tell me.
5: Um, Well, I'm a Native American woman, um, enrolled in a federally recognized tribe, MHA Nation, um, grew up on a reservation, but I'm currently serving a four-year term um, in the state legislature in North Dakota. Fantastic.
1: Congratulations. Wow. Way to go. Okay. So how did you overcome some of what uh, our other callers have talked about? Okay. Building a a network of of people who will work with you on the campaign and give to the campaign. What did you do about that?
5: Um, Just a lot of grassroots efforts, really. Um, I ran in 2016 for the first time ever, and it was a statewide race. I ran for insurance commissioner, didn't win, stayed involved, and then ran again in 2018 um, for a legislative seat in the House, and I won. Um, But it really was having a strong uh, ground game, going door to door, um, knocking doors, visiting voters where they're at, literally on their doorstep. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just really keeping my nose to the grindstone, so to speak. I think Trump visited Fargo at least three times. And that was a little intimidating um, because, of course, he was um, promoting and encouraging support for the Republican ticket, up and down the ticket. Um, So I would say just really stay true to yourself, to your heart, and uh, work hard um, and really, I think, Someone mentioned on this call that, you know, the work might scare people away, including Indigenous women and women of colour. And and I want to say that's not true. Um, I actually welcome the work and I outworked um, my opponents. I outworked um, all of the candidates within our party. And so not only in the campaign trail, but also in the legislative session. Um, so I think saying Indigenous women and women of colour are afraid of the work is a very, very... Um, untrue statement, and I'm here to provide testament to debunk that stereotype.
1: Ruth, uh, we also heard from women who, you know, had to brace themselves, basically, for the kind of stuff they'd encounter on social media and and some of the things that voters might say. You had to prepare yourself, I would think, in some ways. Did you encounter that? What'd you do about it if you did?
5: Yeah, and I think the preparation really begins at birth, to be honest. Um, I've been dealing with these sorts of things all my life um, with unkind um, stereotypes and misperceptions of who you are, even as a a person from Native American background or living on a reservation. Um, It's been, I think my whole life has prepared me for this. but nothing really prepares you for, like, say, attacks that are targeted towards your children or your family. Um, so I would say that is something to consider, but it's not something that should deter you or make you afraid to jump in the political arena, because I believe these sort of targets um, are intentional to scare others from not running for office. That, that's so the
1: consequence, say, right? Then, then yeah. women retreat from
5: Ruth. And I, I think it's intentional. I think people do that on purpose
1: so that no
5: right. more women like you will run for office. For
1: sure, that's a
5: scare tactic.
1: So you've served two terms. Are, are you in the middle of your second term in the legislature? Um,
5: Yeah, so North Dakota is a little bit different. Um, We we don't meet every year for a legislative session. We meet every other year. So we're in our interim committee work. Um, So within a four year term, you'll have
1: two legislative sessions. And what are your political, what are your political ambitions?
5: To get reelected and to help get more people of uh, fresh, diverse perspectives to serve in our state legislature.
1: And to run for governor someday?
5: I will help encourage more people <laughs> to run in every level of government, um, but also really wanting to work to make sure we have good policies coming out um, that work for everyone in our state of North Dakota.
1: I'm so glad your friends were listening to the show and texted you when you called. Thank you. Yes, Really encouraging to hear about your experience. You're listening to Flyover 2020. We're talking about women running for and winning office. What holds women back from making the decision to run? What about the experience of... Women like Ruth who have run and won. And what is the political science research telling us about why some women just opt out? Erin Velarde with us, founder and CEO of Vote Run Lead. And Diane Bystrom with us, director emerita of the Carrie chapman Cat Center for Women and Politics. More of your calls and questions, 651 227 242 28, 28. I have to say it's really exhilarating to hear from so many young women who are thinking about running or running for office or who have actually run and won. So I'd love to hear from more of you this hour and on Twitter at Carrie NPR. Back to our conversation, Flyover 2020 with Aaron Velarde and Diane Bystrom. Aaron, I wanted to give you a chance to uh, weigh in on what you heard from Ruth and maybe a couple of the callers before that. Uh, Mm -hmm. what, What are you taking away from that?
3: So, one, Ruth Buffalo is a national treasure. I hope she does run for continued higher office. Um, but, two, she raises an excellent point about um, the idea that the kind of negativity coming at her, coming at women of color, is actually quite intentional to make sure that you remain a first and only. And we, when we move past the first and only is when we begin to see every day becomes normal for women and for women of color to be serving in public office. So the demand has to be there. More of us do have to run in these you know, not-so-great conditions. But we have a tool, and Minnesota very much has a tool to change the system of how we elect women, which is ranked-choice voting. And we saw what ranked-choice voting can do for city elections in towns and cities across Minnesota, for the state of Maine that has just passed it statewide. When you have the opportunity to, you know, put your first choice and your second choice and your third choice, you, um, one, you take away anything that happened around early voting, like on Super Tuesday when, you know, oh, oh, what happens to my vote now that Mm so-and-so has dropped Mm out? Mm So that spoiler effect um, is mitigated. But what ends up happening is then, the the parties and the pundits can't really pit one another against each other. Instead, you have to go to the firefighters' union and say, hey, I know you might be voting for Jim on your first choice, but let me be your second choice. Let me tell you where I agree with him and where I differentiate. And it increases civility. And we know that civility is one of those barriers, those cultural barriers that women look at politics and go, Oh, can I get it done in that kind of environment? Right? Because we're not running for ego. We're not running for the same reasons. Most women, majorities of women, are running to get something done. So one more of us have to keep running in these not so great conditions. But the rest of us have to be fighting to change those conditions, and one of those things can be ranked choice voting.
1: I just want to note here uh, for women who uh, are thinking about this and worried about the social media environment, the Wilson Center put out a report and and I think this should be noted here. Male and female candidates receive a similar amount of attention on social media. The difference is in the kind of coverage that women get more attacks, more gender specific put downs, more disinformation. Diane, does do those kinds of virtual attacks work because they raise these sexist perceptions that we, many of us already hold, whether it's subconscious or whether it's overt.
2: Yes, and I think there's just been uh, really recently research on social media uh, and attacks uh, men versus women, and I've seen that report. And yes, they get about the same kind of commentary, but there is a certain sexism involved uh, and racism, quite frankly, when women of color w- run in their Twitter feeds. But you know, there's ways to deal with it. And again, I think that you know, one of the things, for example, is that you can have a locked Twitter account, and so and and, and you can report things that 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 do show up. And so there are ways to manage social media. So you're communicating with your followers, the people that you want to communicate policies to. And you know, one of the recent studies was on the 2016 campaign, and it really showed that Hillary Clinton used her Twitter account much more than Donald Trump or even Bernie Sanders to talk about her uh, agenda, her policy agenda. And so Twitter can be a good thing. You know, I think candidates need to learn how to use social media effectively and they need to learn how to turn off or, you know, report or, uh, you know, a a thing that a lot of candidates do is that they, they you have to be approved to follow them. And so certainly then that helps you get rid of some bots. Uh, And so I think, you know, People just need to be savvy about the use of social media, and I think all the campaign schools I'm familiar with have now taken a larger look at social media to allow women to have a presence but know how to manage it.
1: By the way, we're getting news here via CNN that Senator Elizabeth Warren has ended her presidential campaign. No word yet on who she will endorse, but that news coming in via CNN that Senator Elizabeth Warren has decided to end her presidential campaign Diane and Aaron, that probably disappoints you given what we've been talking about this morning. Aaron?
3: Deeply. It deeply disappoints me. I Yes
1: <laughs> go on, go <laughs> on.
3: have a sort of constant frustration um, as we have seen the sort of twenty sixteen um, you know, Hillary conversation of I would vote for a woman except not that woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had, you know, I wish Elizabeth Warren would jump in the race. We had Elizabeth Warren jump in the race. And, and even among her peers, you the idea of electability is still mired in sexism and misogyny. That it is, we cannot yet imagine our country being led by a woman, a, a deeply qualified woman. Um, and at the end of the day, the late decision makers for Joe Biden were. We're voting for, you know, and, and, and it's clear, you know, most Democrats are saying, I'm voting on electability, i.e., who can beat Trump. Right. We cannot imagine it. Um, the New York Times cannot give a single endorsement on it, right? I mean, there's so many places that we can look. Um, and I also want to shout out the women who have stepped forward for Elizabeth Warren, and. Um, the idea that somehow she is a spoiler to Bernie or that she is um, you know, t- taking votes away um, is also part of that conversation in which we, we cannot actually allow her, that agency, to run her own, own campaign. Um, and so we've got to get smarter about what it means to be uh, pro-analysis around gender and misogyny in our government and our politics. Because when, when we're attuned to that, when we can see that, Um, It it allows us to make different decisions. It allows us to see things differently. Um, There's a fantastic article in The New York Times um, that talks about how people, if they could wave a magic wand, they would have voted for Warren. Mm. But they went into the polls and voted for Biden because of that electability factor. And that's the stuff that we have to fight um tooth and nail up again.
1: I want to I want to play something here from an interview that I really recommend to everyone, particularly young women of color and we've heard from quite a few this morning in electoral politics. It's an interview between Claire Malone of 538.com and former Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. It's so revealing, such a good wide-ranging discussion, but Here's Stacey Abrams about what it means to campaign as as a woman and a woman of color. Listen.
7: When something new is on the horizon, we are usually both equally curious and afraid. Mm -hmm. Race and gender have such contextualized meaning in our society that I don't begrudge the question, Mm -hmm. but I resent an answer that doesn't accept the wholeness of who I am. And that's why I was so careful about my response, that I'm electable if I win, and I'm electable because I can win. And what I stand for is not simply, I'm not solely an avatar, not simply, but I'm not solely an avatar for black women, but I am a proud avatar of both of those things because it stands as an example to others of what's possible. But we also have to recognize that electability is not simply a question of whether you have the capacity and if people want you, it's also whether the system will allow it to happen.
1: Again, I can't recommend that interview uh, hard enough because it's an hour of real insight on what it means to be out on the campaign trail. And I want to go to Athena in St. Paul. Hey, Athena, thank you so much for waiting. I'm really glad you did. Tell me a little bit about yourself.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for taking my call. I am a candidate for the Minnesota State House right now, and I just wanted to I'm a woman of color Mm -hmm. and I wanted to provide a little bit of my perspective perspective. Um, from door knocking and campaigning and talking to a lot of lovely people in a very progressive area, but I still get a number of very rude, biased questions, um, including having to constantly prove my qualifications, um, assertions that I'm too young, even though I'm older than um, the incumbent's age when (laughs) he ran for the first time. Oh my gosh, Um, yeah. And even uh, this notion that my voice isn't correct or acceptable and that um, I don't sound authoritative enough or I don't sound like a leader. Um, These are all comments that I've gotten at the door and it it beats you down after a while and you have to have this constant reaffirmation of your, you know, that you deserve to be there and that you're there for a reason and that it is possible for you to win. But I have to admit, it's really hard. It
1: but and very yet, difficult. and yet you're you're in the midst of this campaign, right? You're not walking away from yeah. it.
0: That's correct. Yeah, no, I'm not walking away from it. And I tell people outright, I, I reject the notion that you or anybody knows what a leader should or must look like, sound like, etc. Um, that comes from our history where a number of people, people of color, indigenous people, women were not welcomed into leadership and we have to break that mold and if i am part of breaking that mold all the better.
1: Diana, guarantee you must be thinking about this as you're as you're working on this new book. Yeah, this this idea of what leadership is
2: Yes. And certainly, you know, one of the, I think, good news for women that we've found uh, in several election cycles, and I think it was underscored in 2018, is that one of the things we write about is that there's going to be stereotypes about women candidates and some of the stereotypes you need to break. But other stereotypes and 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 what actually is also supported in the literature is that voters do have a pretty positive view of women, candid- of women in general. They seem that they're more uh, collaborative they feel like they are less uh, partisan, less confrontational. And so some of the reasons that maybe these women, not only won in 2018, and look, you know, look forward, you know, we have a, a lot of women running in 2020 is that in this sort of partisan, this horrible partisan uh era of our times that voters are looking at people, you know, I think that's why in frankly Biden gets a boost. They're looking for people that they view as kind, that they look as collaborative, and they look at being able to work across the aisle. And so that actually are some leadership traits that um, women have and voters feel that they have. And so there are some traits, I think, that women can, um, that they can emphasize in their campaigns. You know, voters think that women are more honest. They think that they're less corruptible. And so there are a lot of traits that voters uh, hold for women candidates that they can capitalize on, uh, especially in this uh, partisan time.
1: Oh, the, you know, I, I'm curious about how the fundraising has been going.
2: Yeah, well, I I have to say it is really difficult,
0: and it was uncomfortable to do mm-hmm. from the start. <laughs> um, that being said, it's my understanding that our campaign raised more than any other campaign that is challenging an incumbent. Wow! Um, so we've well done. done Pretty well. Thank you. And the vast majority of it has been grassroots, you know, knocking on doors, talking to people we know, and trying to get people excited about, you know, a new candidate and somebody who has a fresh perspective. And that has worked fairly well. But I will admit it is the hardest part of campaigning. And I do think that um, men have been socialized to make that those asks that it's easier for them.
1: I wish you resilience on the campaign trail, Athena. And I'm really glad you heard the show and had a minute to call yeah. in. Thank you much. Thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, I want to read something on Twitter here for you, and then and then talk about some research on this. Katie says, "How do we change the media conversation? Even when Warren won the debate, the conversation in media was Bloomberg uh, lost, not that Warren won." A- and I was reading something that came out of Purdue by these social psychologists. That, that found that challenging sexism in the moment can be really important to addressing sexism. And and I was thinking about, you know, I watched some cable news, some political coverage, and when you've got some cable news dude who pipes up with, that's just a bad look, she looked angry, what's going on with her hair? She's, you know, why doesn't she fix her makeup? I can't stand the sound of her voice. Having people speak up in the moment to challenge that apparently can be pretty valuable. Do we get enough of that? We
3: don't get enough of that. We are seeing more female candidates leverage that in the moment. I'm going to stand up for myself. This is I'm going to stand up for you. It's a clear um, trust factor, right? That the way I'm behaving right now in, um, you know, having my own back is the way I'm going to have your back. Um, I think as a women's political community, one of the things we're really looking at is, is there something macro level? Because we know at the micro level, we're having tons of qualified women step up and run. But the, again, they're running in these conditions where it's harder for them to fundraise, You know, less likely that they're going to get big checks. When we do fundraise, we end up getting smaller checks. So there are some clear disadvantages. Um, but Two things. One, we have to look at places where we're seeing success. State legislatures. If we can move this country to majority female legislatures, majority women in the legislatures, you are going to see the wave of women get so much government done. They're going to pass budgets on time. They are going to bring more money home to their districts. They're going to, you know, as we're seeing in five or six states that are between forty and fifty percent, we only have one one state over fifty, they are passing Uh, common sense uh, gun reform. They are passing climate change bills. They are um, holding the line for reproductive justice. They're raising minimum wage. Um, They're doing the business of government at the state legislative level. And that's where Boat Run Lead is actually going to be focusing because we have to get our state houses and our state capitals as the model locally and take that wave across the country because they're making it hard on purpose. They're not going to give us power. This isn't going to be one of those things where, come on in, we're going to do quotas, and we're going to get 50% of you all in here because we know it's the right thing to do. So we have to be strategic about where we're putting our energies as a community, um, and we have to be maxing out our checkbooks in the meantime.
1: Okay. I want to play one more excerpt from this interview I talked about uh, with Stacey Abrams, and this is for every woman who has said, I couldn't do this, I don't have the qualifications, they're going to find me out. I hope this is encouraging. Listen to what she says. Imposter syndrome often happens because we
7: don't do that deep personal investigation. And we have to do it in a way that doesn't become navel-gazing. I've been very intentional for most of my adult life to judge where I am and make sure I'm there because of my merit, because of my effort, and to figure out what else it was. I believe in serendipity. If I get there because someone else decided to make it happen— what I have internalized is they may get me there but I'm the only person who can keep me there
1: yeah Diane more women to say where am I I could do this right
2: yes Coincidentally, I'll be talking about the imposter syndrome uh, tomorrow in Lincoln, Nebraska. Excellent. uh, And how to overcome it. Uh, But anyway, yes, a lot of research on this. And certainly, uh, you know, the imposter syndrome really dates back to 1978, an article by two psychologists. So it's kind of reared its head again because people like Stacey Abram are talking about it. Michelle Obama talked about it on her Mm -hmm. book tour. Mm -hmm. It kind of came back into vogue when Sheryl Sandberg talked about it in Lean In in 2013. And so women are paying attention to this. And so, uh, you know, everything that. Stacey Abrams said is right you know you have self doubt, but there are ways to overcome it, and so that starts in knowing who you are. you know Aaron said that earlier we 're not trying to teach candidates to be someone different we 're trying to capitalize on who they are and how they can make a difference. And I also want to second what Aaron said about local office. Sometimes we're so distracted about what we see in the presidential race and and, in Congress sometimes, but in Ready to Run, we also focused on more local elections, state legislatures, and also on city council and school boards. And the last year I ran Ready to Run, uh, women came out. I think we had 172 women that participated uh, in our, our workshops and The ones that came, actually women in several communities, including Ames, Iowa, they flipped the local school board from a male-dominated school board to a female-dominated. And so we need to look at those successes on school boards, city councils, and certainly state legislatures.
1: Diane, uh, well, that is serendipitous, isn't it, to have you talking about (laughs) imposter syndrome? Because I know that's a thing that... Women talk about between ourselves, but we don't mm-hmm. often talk about it openly, publicly. So, good for you. I'm glad. It's okay. <laughs> such a pleasure to talk again with you, Diane. Thanks so much for being part of the show. Really good to have you.
2: Well, thanks for having me,
1: Aaron. I wish you the best, founder and CEO of Vote Run Lead. You're doing good work. Thanks very much. Thank you. Erin Velarde with us from Washington, D.C., Diane Bystrom with us today from Omaha, Nebraska. So maybe you got in on this show at the end, and oh my gosh, we missed so many great women who wanted to participate in this. If you couldn't catch the whole show, I'd really love it if you'd listen to it on the podcast, especially if you are thinking about getting into electoral politics. Search NPR News with Carrie Miller wherever you listen.
0: You just heard a recording of a live radio show from NPR News. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this, subscribe to our podcast. And thanks for listening.